Good morning, everyone. Uh, if you have a Bible, please turn with me. First Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. First Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. Um, before the reading of Scripture, I just wanted to remind you that we are in a series through the book of First Timothy entitled, Living as the Household of God. Over the past two weeks, we've looked at the qualifications for officers of the church, elders and deacons. So today, um, we look at the end of chapter 3, where Paul teaches about what the church is and how the members of the church ought to, con ought to conduct themselves. Well, um, if you are able, I invite you to stand with me for the scripture reading. We stand as a way of showing reverence for the Word of God. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. People of God, now listen to the Word of God. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. Would you join me now as you pray once again? <laughs> Father in heaven, <clears throat> thank you for your word that is given to us only by your grace. We oftentimes neglect how precious and sweet your word is. But today we have gathered here <clears throat> to listen to your word and grow in our faith through it. As you approach the word now, Please humble us that we will be able to hear what we need to hear as we strive to live as the household of God, not only here at Cornerstone, but also in every day of our lives. Also, please humble me to be used as your own instrument so that I'll be faithful to your word. <clears throat> May this time be, be only glorifying to you and edifying to our church. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, in our current sermon series, we've been reading Paul's letter to his beloved brother, Timothy. I know in this present day, we don't really read letters, although our Cornerstone admin sends us the weekly newsletter every Thursday. And we don't also bother to write letters to communicate with people about important matters. However, back in the day, when the early church was just established, sending a letter to the church was one of the significant ways to communicate with fellow Christians. And it even serves as a means of teaching and rebuking the early Christians. The early church was growing fast after the resurrection of Christ, but the availability of apostles and teachers was limited. The growing church needed to be edified with a sound doctrine, and the letter was a means to deliver the, deliver the important teaching of Scripture to the church. 
First Timothy, which we've been looking at in this series, is one of those letters. Considering this context of the early church, uh, today I'm going to unpack what it says in our passage, 1 Timothy chapter 3, 14 to 16, in three headings. Uh, and here's our first heading. <clears throat> Paul's purpose in urgently writing these things. In today's passage, um, Paul sets forth the purpose of this letter. Verses 14 to 15 say, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Paul uses an ambiguous term here in verse 15. Paul says, I'm writing these things. What does he mean by, by these things? Is it the passage right before which is about the qualification for elders and deacons or the following chapters? I believe that Paul means the previous content of, of this letter as well as the following chapters. Um, in, in other words, <clears throat> what we have read in the previous chapters and what we will read in the following chapters are referred to as these things in verse 15. Therefore, in verse 15, Paul talks about what the purpose of this whole letter is. The purpose statement is explicit. In verse 15, Paul says that he has, he has written this letter so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So Paul not only wants to teach elders and deacons, but he also wants to teach all members of the household of God about how they ought to conduct themselves in the church. Sinners like us have been justified, justified by faith alone through the grace of God. And now we have become sons and daughters of the household of God. So we ought to strive for sanctification by the strength of the Holy Spirit. Because we are under the household of God, not under our own household. Therefore, believers are required to act differently from their old ways of living as unbelievers. So here's our first implication for today. The sons and daughters of the household of God ought to show their faith by conducting themselves according to the teaching of Scripture. The sons and daughters of the household of God ought to show their faith by conducting themselves according to the, according to the teaching of Scripture. You know, like when you go to another family's house, uh, you find out that they have different rules for their family members. Each household has its own rules, such as like um, taking off shoes before going into a house and um, washing, the, washing hands right after arriving to a house and so on. Um, and the members of a household try to keep the house rules for the sake of each other's comfort as well as to maintain peace. So by writing this letter to Timothy, Paul wants to communicate the rules of the household of God. And he's saying that each members must forsake their own rules and strive to keep those rules of the household of God. Notice also here what Paul says in verses 14 to 15. Paul says that, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. It looks like Paul had plans to visit the church of Ephesus 
where Timothy served as a pastor. But he wrote this letter just in case he was delayed. He could have just waited until he would be able to visit the church, and he could have just taught them about, the, about how the church ought to behave when he got there. However, Paul was burdened to write this letter, and he didn't want to delay in delivering this message. This is because teaching the household rules to the household of God was an urgent and significant matter. So he couldn't leave this urgent matter to the uncertainty of his plans. Then why would he feel so urgent about teaching them how they ought to conduct themselves? We know from scripture that Christians have been waiting for the return of Christ ever since he was lifted up to heaven. We also know that there will be a lot of temptations to follow false teachers and disciple spirit in that period, period of waiting for the return of Christ. However, nobody knows that day or hour. Scripture clearly bear, bears witness to this. Matthew 24, 36 says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. We learn some important lesson from this fact. Only God knows when the second coming of Jesus Christ will be. So every Christian of all ages ought to be ready every day of our lives for that encounter with the final day. In other words, our faith must be evidenced by our conduct and behavior in a way that prepares the way of the Lord's second coming. Do you see why Paul was so urgent about delivering the message contained in this letter? The immediate context of today's passage also tells us why it was urgent for Paul to write this letter. In the following chapters, uh, Paul warns that within the church, there will be some people who depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and who teach a different doctrine and do not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the, the early Christians were surrounded by many temptations of deceitful spirits and the false teaching of Scripture, and in those cases, conducting themselves in a way to show their faith was an urgent and significant matter. So Paul urgently, urgently wrote this letter to inform the church how it should behave because showing their faith by behaving correctly was an urgent and significant matter. Friends, doesn't this sound familiar to you? Doesn't this description about the waiting period sound similar to that of our days? In that all Christians live in the last days after the resurrection of Christ, we face the same context as, a, as the Christians in the church of Ephesus. Therefore, although this letter was written around 2,000 years ago, the purpose of this letter applies the same to our church, which is to inform the church how it should behave. Paul's urgency for this message in 1 Timothy needs to be our urgency as we live out our days now. 
In these days of hoping for the return of Christ, this letter teaches us how we need to conduct ourselves as the, as the sons and daughters of the household of, household of God and showing our faith by conducting ourselves according to the rules of faith is not something that we can postpone or delay to tomorrow. It's an urgent and significant matter in our days when false teachers and disciples' spirits sneak into the church and impair it with a false doctrine. Now Paul moves on to talking about the identity of the household of God. This leads us to our second heading, the church's identity as the household of God. The church's identity as the household of God. In verse 15, Paul says, The household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Paul here describes two important characteristics of the church. First, the church is the church of the living God. Second, the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. Let's look at our first point about the church's identity. The church is the church of the living God. Before today's passage, we've looked at the qualifications for elders and deacons. Elders, makes, elders make a lot of important decisions for the church, and deacons serve the church in a way that meets the physical need of the, of the church. But because of what we see physically, people sometimes mistakenly think that the elders and deacons are the lords of the church. But in today's passage, Paul says, no, the Lord of the church is the living God. So under the lordship of the living God, deacons and elders are called to serve his church faithfully. Then what does Paul want to communicate with us here by saying that our God, who is the Lord of the church, is the living God? This means that God is not distant from us. Although he's fundamentally distinct from his creatures, he dwells in us and he resides wherever his people gather as the church. This also means that after finishing the work of creating the world, God doesn't just stand back. Looking at how things are going in the world, he's the living God who sustains the created world and runs the entire history of human beings. And the living God preserves the church throughout all ages, even today at this moment. The concept of the living God also conveys to us that this God is fundamentally distinct from his creatures and all created things. God is not like the idols of this world. Idols that are claimed to be gods are dead gods. But our God is the living God. God is also not like us in that he's never subject to death, whereas all of us are subject to death after the fall. His life itself, he's the living God, and he's also the source of anything that has life, as well as eternal life that is promised to us. This living God has been testified to us throughout scripture. Um, first Samuel 17, 30, 36 says this, uh, your servant has struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised 
Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And Luke 20, 38 says this, Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Isn't it comforting and relieving to hear that only the living God is the Lord of the church? Imagine, imagine the Lord of the church is a person who is trustworthy, reliable, or respectable. We know how simple we are. We know how simple this world is. And with a lot of sadness, we've seen so many failures of people who used to be trustworthy, reliable, and respectable. Since no one is perfect, we would have much more reasons to be concerned if a human being was the Lord of this church. But thankfully, Paul says in today's passage, and the church has confessed that the church is the church of the living God, who is unchangeable, <clears throat> knows no sin, and is fundamentally distinct from his creatures. But don't get me wrong here. This is not to say that we shouldn't take ownership of things in the church or that we shouldn't respect elders and deacons. Of course, we need to have ownership of, ownership of the church as citizens of the kingdom of God and as sons and daughters of the household of God. Of course, we need to respect our elders and deacons, but as the household of God, it should never be compromised that the final authority of this church is the living God, and he is the only Lord of this church. Let's move on to our next point on the identity of the church. Now Paul, Paul says that the church of the living God is a pillar and buttress of the truth. These terms, pillar and buttress, are architectural term, terms. In a building, a pillar functions to hold the entire building, connecting the foundation to each roof. And a buttress helps to stabilize its walls and pillars. Unless these pillars and buttresses are firm and steadfast, the building will eventually fall down. Understanding these architectural terms is helpful to understand what Paul means by calling the church a pillar and buttress, buttress of the truth. Paul here shows us not only what the church is, but also what the major ministry of the church is. The church has received the truth only by the expense of the blood of Christ. It is only by the grace of God that the church is given the truth of God. The truth of gospel. So just as a pillar and buttress holds up and stabilizes a building, the church needs to uphold the received truth and preserve it from the threat of false teachers and deceitful spirits. And the church finds this truth only in scripture, and the truth of God is proclaimed through the preaching of the word and the sacrament. Based on the evidence of scripture, we can also boldly say that the truth is Jesus Christ himself, the word of God, which is before the foundation of the world. John 1, 1 says, in the, beginning, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Therefore, on the foundation of the Word of God itself, 
the pillar and buttress of the truth have been established in the form of the church. And the church has a significant mission and task to uphold and preserve the truth. So here's the second, sec, here's the second implication for today. The church needs to acknowledge the authority of the living God and hold the truth firmly and steadfastly. Friends, the early Christians strove to support this truth to the point where they gave up their life under the persecution of, of the Roman Empire. But they followed the command of our God, who is above all nations, to uphold and preserve this truth. We need to appreciate this fact that the unchangeable truth is given to inconsistent sinners like us. We don't deserve to hold the truth, considering how simple we are. But God, who is good and faithful, decide, decided to reveal the truth to us from the beginning of the world. In Christ, the gospel truth is fully revealed, and we gratefully receive it by faith alone through the grace of God. Therefore, it is an incomparably great privilege that we receive the truth and uphold and preserve it in this world. But looking at every day of our lives, do we really honor this privilege? The church is not just a social group. Our fellowship within the church is important, but the, and the joy of fellowship must, be, must not be neglected in the church. However, it sometimes looks like the truth of the truth of God is not the most important thing, important thing as some churches. And the social aspects of the church look more important to them. Dear Cornerstone, we don't want to make a mistake like that. So let us cherish the word of God more and let us honor the authority of scripture more in order for us to be a firm and steadfast pillar and buttress of the truth. Only in the truth of God, we are safe and made alive. Now we come to the last verse, um, and this brings us to our last heading, the mystery of faith and godliness. The mystery of faith and godliness. Paul ends this chapter by expanding on the content of the truth to which the church must hold fast to. In fact, this last verse is adopted from a hymn of the, home, hymn of the early church. The early Christians corporately confessed their faith by singing this hymn. Let me read verse 16 again. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on the believed on in the, in the world, taken up in glory. Isn't, isn't this amazing to hear how similar that is to what we confess in the Apostles' Creed? The same truth that we confess today remains over the course of the history throughout all ages. What can, you, what can we say more about this except the grace of God? It is only the grace of God that preachers this truth through his church. Now let me dive more 
deeper into what each line of the hymn means. Um, the mystery of faith and godliness is nothing else than Christ Jesus himself. Although we don't find the name of Christ in the hymn, its content shows that Christ is the mystery of, the, of faith and godliness. The first sign says this, He who was manifested in the flesh. The Son of God came down to the world by taking on human flesh. So the incarnated Christ, who is true God and true man, is described here. Christ becoming our representative finished the work of salvation by dying on the cross and being raised from the dead, and it is indeed worthy of our praise. The second and third lines say this, vindicated by the Spirit and seen by angels. This sign describes the resurrected Christ. Not only did Jesus die on the cross for our sins, but he was also raised from the dead. And at his resurrection, the Holy Spirit proves that Jesus is who he himself claimed to be by raising him up from the dead. Christ foretold his death and resurrection three times during his earthly ministry. And people didn't know what he meant by that. But the, but the Holy Spirit confirmed that everything that Jesus said was true at, at the resurrection of Christ. And he was presented to the angels on the Easter, Easter morning. Therefore, these signs of the hymn praise the truthfulness of Christ and his resurrection. The fourth and fifth signs say this, proclaimed among the nations believed on in the world. The gospel truth that is confessed in the previous lines doesn't just stay inside the people of Israel. This good news has been proclaimed among the nations, reaching far to the Gentiles. Not only has this news been proclaimed, but the gospel truth was also believed. The, proclama the proclamation of the gospel and the faith that justifies sinners are not something that we should, we should take for granted. Rather, this is certainly what we must be grateful for. The last sign says this, taken up in glory. This last sign represents the exaltation of Christ. The placement of this line at the end of the hymn looks a bit awkward because Christ ascended before he was proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world. However, the focus of this hymn is not on recording the event chronologically, but it emphasizes the elevated status of Christ. In other words, Christ who was lifted up to heaven and is sitting at the right hand of God the Father is praised in this sign. Friends, the mystery of faith that is confessed through this hymn not only teaches us who Jesus is, but these truths are the foundation of the godliness of our character and our life. In other words, godliness flows out from the mystery of faith, Jesus Christ himself. We see the humility and perfect obedience of Christ through his incarnation. We also see the foundation of our hope in Christ through his resurrection. We see God's missional vision for the world and his desire for his people to come to him, repent, and believe in Christ. Lastly, 
we see our hope for the second coming of Christ through his ascension. This is because he promised to us that he will come in the same way as we saw him going to heaven. Therefore, the conduct, the conduct of the members of the household of God must reflect the mystery of faith. Because Christ became the perfect example of godliness, we need to conform to Christ himself as the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. As 1 Peter 2.21 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. So here is our final implication for today. The church of the living God must hold the mystery of faith, and the mystery of faith leads the members of the church into the godly living. The perfection of Christ and his complete obedience never discourages us. It rather embraces us into the, arm, into the arms of the Father, and it lays the ground for the godliness of Christians like us. Friends, no church ever stands alone. The church of the living God stands on the foundation of the word of God. And on that foundation, the church upholds and preserves the truth as pillars and buttresses uphold the house. And when the members of the household of God strive to live a godly life, God our Father doesn't just leave us alone. He has left us the perfect example of a godly life, which is Jesus Christ. So dear cornerstone, why don't you look up to Christ? This life is full of struggles and pain. So when we see ourselves, there seems to be only helpless and hope hopeless persons. And we sometimes just don't know where to start as much as we want to be faithful Christians. And yet, God told us to look to Christ, who is the perfect example of godliness, and shows us the perfect obedience by taking on human flesh, dying on the cross, being raised, raised up from the dead, and being lifted up into heaven. This is, this is what we know and ought to do because the mystery of godliness has been revealed to us. It is not hidden anymore. Of course, there will be times and days when you get discouraged and tired, but to be sure, there will be a day when our sanctification will be perfected and we will be glorified. Let us look forward to the day with a firm and steadfast hope in Christ. Let's pray.